0: Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may, in such wise, hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Um, I realize we're at tables, and um, it's a little awkward if you're sitting at a table and facing the opposite direction, so uh, feel free to take the chairs and move them around. There are also some chairs in the back, a somewhat large crowd today, which is a great thing, praise the Lord, and, um, but feel free to um, make yourselves comfortable, and uh, if we need more lunches. Um, which it looks like we might um, next week. We'll make sure that there are more lunches here for you. So if you're visiting with us today or you're here for the first time, we are delighted to have you. Welcome. Uh, We are in a study of the book of Acts. And we are in Acts chapter 4 today. So if you have your Bibles, um, if you didn't bring Bibles with you and you want to be a part of this class, let me encourage you to do so. Um, Some of you will have your Bibles, I know, on your cell phones. At least I'm saying that, so if you're actually on eBay or something like that, it, I, I think that you're, I'm, I'm giving myself an out here. But we are in Acts chapter 4. What we're going to do is we're going to read through the first 12 verses uh, today, and probably then 13 through 22 as well. But Acts chapter 4 verses 1 through 12 is where we pick up the narrative this afternoon. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people, and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about five thousand. And on the next day their ruler given among men by which we must be saved. We said that Acts chapter 3 records the first miracle performed by Peter. I say records. It lists the first recorded. This is the first recorded miracle that we find in the book of Acts. We know that the apostles were doing other signs and wonders in the presence of the people, but we said last week that Luke records this particular one. And we commented on the fact that it was not unusual for the gospel writers or the New Testament writers to be selective in their use of material. They didn't include everything that Jesus did. Uh, John, in his gospel, makes that very clear. He said that Jesus did many other signs that are not written in this book, but these are written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says that toward the end of his gospel. And at the very end of his gospel, he says Jesus did many other things that are not recorded in this book if they were all written down The world's libraries could not contain them. So we know that the New Testament writers were being selective in their material. Um, Matthew and Mark and Luke include some information that John obviously does not, because each of them, while they are telling the same story of the same person, they are telling it with a slightly different emphasis. We see that today in modern biographies. I mean, how many more biographies of Abraham Lincoln can there possibly be? Or of Winston Churchill? But different people write different biographies because you're bringing out a different aspect of their character or of their life's work. Well, that's what the gospel writers did. And so there were many other signs and wonders that the disciples were doing, that the apostles were doing, but Luke records this one in particular. Now, why is that? Well, we said that one of the reasons he records it is because this particular event was the first occasion of outright persecution in the life of the church. All right, this is the first time that the apostles really begin to face pressure from the authorities and from the outside culture. They recall that what happened was Peter and John were on their way up to the temple at the appointed time of prayer, good Jews that they were, church was starting, they were on their way up, and they encountered this man who is begging by the temple gate called Beautiful. That's the main entrance going into Jerusalem, it's the Golden Gate. Uh, Those of you who have been to the Holy Land, if you've stood on the Mount of Olives and you've looked toward Jerusalem, down through the Kidron Valley and up toward the Wall City, that gate that is all bricked up is the Golden Gate. That was the main entrance into Jerusalem. Uh, Today, there is a huge cemetery that's been built in front of that gate. And it's kind of interesting why it was. It's a Muslim cemetery, and it was built there for a specific reason. It was built there because the Muslims knew that there was a prophecy that the Jewish Messiah would come, and that when he came, he would come through that gate, the main entrance, the beautiful gate, the golden gate. But they were trying to somehow stop that prophecy from coming to pass, because they knew no no good Jew would ever pass through a pagan cemetery. And so they had constructed the cemetery, and you can see it today, right up to the golden gate. What they didn't realize is that he's already been. He came through on that first Palm Sunday. But if you stood there on the Mount of Olives, that's the gate. And it was there. It was a strategic location. And there is this man who's been lame, really, since birth, and he is begging for alms. And Peter and John are making their way up there, and they encounter this man. And he's holding up whatever container he had, his tin cup or whatever it is, begging for alms. And Peter and John go up to him, and they say, silver and gold we don't have, but what we have we'll give to you. And they take him by the hand, and they lift him up, and he feels a strengthening in his ankles, and he's immediately healed. And these are what we call the signs and the wonders and the things that accompanied an apostle. an apostle that was a testimony to their power and to their authority and to the ministry that they had from Jesus. So it was a great occasion, but Peter and John were accustomed to this sort of thing happening. And, and I told you last week, when I imagine it, and of course, they didn't have wristwatches, but I always imagine John tugging on Peter and saying, let's go, we're going to be late, we're going to be late. And so Peter and John continue into the temple precincts, but this man who's been healed, his life is changed. And we're told that he follows them in, leaping and jumping and praising God and causing a commotion to such a degree that a huge crowd gathers. And there's a crowd. Now, what do you do if you have a crowd? Well, if you're a preacher, you do one of two things. You either deliver a sermon or you take up a collection. I mean, that's just the way it works. And that's exactly what Peter did. Peter seized the opportunity. And we said last week, life is filled with opportunities. This is the amazing thing about the church in those early days. The church really was not what we would call proactive in sharing the gospel. The early disciples didn't get up in the morning and say, let's go up to the temple. Let's be, let's be strategic about this. We're going to go up to the temple, find somebody who needs healing. Let's heal them, cause a commotion, and preach a sermon. That was never part of the plan. In fact, you will not find that the church really becomes proactive, missional in its attitude in sharing the gospel until Acts chapter 13. Up to this point... They're simply seizing the opportunities as they present themselves. And this was an opportunity, the crowd's there, so Peter preaches a message. Now, we said that the message really had a two-point focus. First of all, they're preaching Jesus Christ. I mean, they really get into the people's grill on this one. They basically said, the people want to say, how did this happen? How did you do this, Peter and John? And we said, to their credit, Peter did not draw attention to himself. What a temptation. I mean, these were just common fisher folk, and everybody wanted to know, by what power have you done this? What kind of authority do you have? And Peter makes it very clear, it is not by my own authority. Don't think that we did this in and of our own power. What a great example. It's the same example that we get from John the Baptist. We're told when John was out there preaching in the Judean wilderness as Jesus' ministry was just about to begin, John, the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he's preaching the message that the people needed to repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God had arrived. And we're told that all of Jerusalem and Judea went out to John confessing their sins. It was a great event. The Holy Spirit was at work in the lives of these people. And an official delegation was sent out from Jerusalem to inquire as to whether or not John might be the Messiah. Some years ago, there was a movie that came out starring Sean Connery. Uh, Sean Connery, and I'm trying to think of who the other person was, Uh, another famous English actor, I can't think of his name right now, but it was called The Man Who Would Be King. Uh, Michael Caine, that's it, Michael Caine. And it's the story of these two ex-British soldiers who are in search of this famous lost city of gold and so forth, Uh, an El Dorado of sorts. And they eventually get there, and one of them is made a king. And he really shouldn't have been. It does not end well. Let's just put it that way. But the temptation to be king, to have that kind of attention, you know, we crave that sort of thing. And what a temptation it would have been John to say, yeah, you know what? I just, I just might be that Messiah. But we're told John freely confessed. He said, I am not the one. He said, I baptize you with water, but there is one coming after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John realized that he was a light, but his light was a reflected glory. Like the light of the moon, not the light of the sun. The sun was about to rise on those people. Well, that's the way Peter realized. Peter realized it was a great temptation, but he wasn't the one who did it. And so he freely confessed. He said, if you want to know how this man stands before you healed, it's by the name of Jesus. But he didn't stop there. He said, it's by the name of Jesus, who you what? Crucified. You denied him. You betrayed the Lord of glory and you hanged him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead. And so he lays out the content of the gospel, but then he did something else. He did what? He went for the sale. That's what I said, you always, when we witness, have to go for the sale. And he went for the sale. He said, therefore, you need to turn to this Jesus. Why? Two reasons. One, so that your sins may be blotted out. We talked about sin and the importance of understanding the gravity of sin. Sin is something that we have ignored too much in our culture. We tend to think, we we don't even talk in terms of sin these days. We talk in terms of mistakes. But sin is not a mistake, it's a grievous act of rebellion against God, and it's punishable by death. And so, what we have happening here is a situation where Peter says, you need to repent because this Jesus whom you crucified has been raised from the dead and he is the only name under heaven by which men must be saved. So turn to him that your sins may be blotted out and that number two, what? Times of refreshment may come from the Lord. We asked the question last week, how many of us need refreshment? How so often do we feel parched And dry, like there's nothing left. And we need that refreshing water of God's grace and mercy. Well, great message. And we're told that people responded to it. But we also know from life that no good deed goes unpunished. (laughs) And that was the case with these men. They healed a man, they preached the message of the gospel, people's lives were transformed, but Jesus had made it very clear toward the end of His public ministry that the gospel was not going to go out into the world without facing opposition. And Jesus had made it very clear to His disciples, as the world has hated me, so the world will hate you. If you're a creature of a dark, the last thing that you want is the light. And so, what we have here is a case of persecution, preaching of the gospel. It's a great example of how we are to share the gospel, but it does not go without resistance. So, what happens here? Well, we see in today's section that what happened was that the temple guard came and they arrested them. Chapter 4, verse 1, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple... And the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed, I love that expression, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And what happened, verse 3, they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So they are arrested and they are thrown into jail. If you were in church this past Sunday, you heard me preach on the Olivet Discourse. Um, keep your finger there in Acts chapter 4, and flip over, if you will, to Luke chapter 21, and just remind ourselves of what we heard this past Sunday. Luke chapter 21 beginning at verse five, this was the gospel lesson this past Sunday, and this is what Jesus said to the the apostles. He was speaking of what the end times would be looking like, and we said in church on Sunday, the end times are really that whole period of time between the Lord's ascension and His return in glory, which means you and I are living right now in the end times. And Jesus is telling His disciples, this is what you can expect to see in the end times. And He says this, beginning at verse 10, He says, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs for heaven. But before all this, they will what? They will lay their hands on you, and they will persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Verse 16, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. To be forewarned is to be forearmed, which means that what we have happening here in the book of Acts should not take us by surprise, and it certainly shouldn't have taken Peter, James, John, and all the rest by surprise either. Jesus said this is exactly what we can expect to see happen. And I think that's very important for us as Christians. We have, at least in America, lived a relatively easy life as Christian people. Uh, We are living in a culture that is at least got vestiges of Christian tradition, a Judeo Christian morality. But there is no guarantee that that is going to continue. You've heard me say before we are really living in a cut flower society. Cut flowers are beautiful. There's just one little problem with them they're dead, they're already dead. (laughs) And sooner or later, what happens? The petals begin to fall. And Right now, in American society, we did have a Christian heritage, but more and more, we're seeing particularly in the activist court system and so forth, where the courts are legislating rather than simply interpreting the laws, what we're beginning to see is that we're cutting ourselves off from our Christian heritage, and sooner or later, what happens? The petals begin to fall. The petals begin to fall, and so we shouldn't be surprised that there is persecution coming our way, and we're beginning to see more and more of that in America today and in Western culture as a whole. It's perfectly fine, for example, on British Airways for a Muslim flight attendant to go ahead and wear her scarf. But a year ago, a flight attendant who was wearing a cross was told that she had to take it off or lose her position, which just goes to show you that the only group that it is still fair game to mock and to ridicule in a politically correct culture are those who follow, as I said on Sunday, hard after Jesus. So whether we like to believe it or not, it's coming to a theater near us, indeed it's already here. Well, the disciples should not have been surprised by what they saw, and I don't think they were. I don't think they were altogether surprised. Jesus had made it very clear in other places as well that there would be persecution. You can take a look at Mark chapter 13 real quick. And the reason why we're looking at all of these passages is to see that Jesus didn't say this once. <laughs> you know, when Jesus says something once, we ought to pay attention. When he says it over and over again, we ought to, as that colic that I started with says, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it. And in Mark chapter 13, verses 9 through 11, Jesus said this, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to You will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my namesake to bear witness and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say but say whatever is given to you in that hour for it is not you who speak but the Holy Spirit and brother will deliver brother over to death, father his child and children rise against parents and have them put to death. And again, here it is, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. So, we see that this is a continuing refrain that Jesus gives us. You can also see it there in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. And here we are now in Acts chapter 4, and for the first time, it happens in the life of the church. Jesus' prophecy comes to pass. They preach the gospel, but no good deed goes unpunished, and they are seized they are arrested because the authorities are greatly annoyed. This reminds me of, one of an old hymn of the church. I don't know that it's in the 1940 hymnal, but it's a great, um, it was in the old Presbyterian hymnal. It's called Zion Stands, and the hymn has this, song, this stanza in it. Zion stands by hills surrounded, Zion kept by power divine. All her foes shall be confounded, though the world in arms combine Zion the holy city of God the church as it will stands hill surrounded the enemy is on every hill all around us and that stanza says also the world in arms combine you know sometimes as christians we feel as though we are completely outnumbered and we are surrounded more like the Battle of Rourke's Drift, if you've ever seen the movie Zulu, where it's this tiny little British contingent of soldiers surrounded by thousands of Zulu warriors, and there's not much chance they're going to break out of this. And sometimes that's how we feel as Christians in the world. We feel as though we're the minority. But of course, that great hymn says, Zion stands by hill surrounded. Zion kept, what? By power divine. All her foes shall be confounded, though the world in arms combine. So we need to remember greater is he that is with us than he that is in the world. But the reality is sometimes it does seem like we are outnumbered, doesn't it? And you see what's happening in our country. How many of you feel like Christians are a little bit outnumbered these days? Sure, we feel that way. And I imagine that is exactly how the disciples felt. Uh, Luke is a wonderful historian and he gives us a great deal of detail in this passage. Uh, Take a look at verses five and following. Uh, You'll notice that the Christians are few. It's just Peter and John at this point. All the 12 aren't brought in. Peter and John were the ones who had performed the miracle. Peter's the one who preached the message. So those are the two that are dragged in. Now, it's just two guys. They're uneducated. They're fisher folk, but they're regarded as a threat and a big threat. How do we know they're a big threat? Because there's only two of them, but look at how many people come against them. And verses five and following, on the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when he had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power and by what name do you do this? So, first of all, look at what we've got here. We've got priests. The priests are there in verse one. The priests are the ones who came along with the temple guards, the captain of the temple guard. um, These were very important and powerful people. Their responsibility was to keep the peace and to maintain peace, particularly around the temple. Incidentally, it was the captain of the temple guard and the temple guards that arrested Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. It's not the Romans. Now, Jesus was eventually turned over to the Romans, but it was the captain of the temple guard. Jesus was considered to be such a threat that the Jews sent the captain of the temple guard. Not just a small contingent, but the top man. And we see that here, the captain of the temple guard came. We also see that the Sadducees are there. Now, who are they? Well, they were part of the priestly clan. Uh, They were the liberals of the day, though. Uh, We would call them members of the mainline Protestant denominations today, the Sadducees. We read in verse 5, the rulers are there. The elders are there. Verse 5, the teachers of the law are there. Furthermore, Annas is there and so is Caiaphas. Who are they? They were the high priests. I say high priests, plural. Technically, there was only one high priest, and you inherited that position. The real high priest was a man by the name of Caiaphas. But Caiaphas did not necessarily cooperate with the Romans very well. and So, they basically kicked him out and replaced him. How do you think this is going to work in the family dynamic? With his son-in-law, Annas. But the Jews always regarded Caiaphas as the high priest, although Annas had the power. And so Caiaphas had the influence, Annas had the power, both very important people. Incidentally, same two high priests that Jesus was brought before. On the night before he was actually executed, he was kept in a cell beneath the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest. So these are the very same authorities that conspired to put Jesus to death. And they're all coming now against Peter. Furthermore, we're told, John, Alexander, and other members of the high priest family. So this is power, folks. This is power. This is influence. And they're all coming against little Peter and John. You think they felt outnumbered? You think we're going to feel outnumbered? Sometimes we look at what's taking place in the court system, we take a look at what's happening in government, and we think that we have no voice whatsoever. And that's how they must have felt as well. Well, you've got to ask yourself, we're told that the leaders, all of these people, were greatly annoyed. Well, what had them upset? Why were they greatly annoyed? Because Peter and John had healed a man? What's wrong with healing a person? And and furthermore, this really, we're not even told, happened on a Sabbath. Now, we understand that Jesus got in trouble for doing things on a Sabbath, but that's not necessarily the case here. They were on their way up to the temple, but it doesn't say it was the Sabbath, so why are they all bent out of the frame? What's the issue here? Well, Luke makes it very clear what the problem was. The problem was that they were teaching the people. Greatly annoyed, verse 2, because they were teaching people the people. Peter, John had no schooling. They hadn't been to any of the rabbinical academies. They had never been formally licensed to preach. Um, some of you have asked the question, when I um, preach, I often wear these preaching bands. And some of you have asked me about those. They say, well, those are Presbyterian. They're not Presbyterian. Presbyterians sometimes wear them, but they're Anglican. And they're called preaching bands because in the Church of England there are only two groups within society that are licensed by the Crown to speak publicly. They are barristers in a courtroom and clergy of the Church of England. And so those preaching bands are a sign of their authority to speak publicly. And if you've ever seen one of those British costume dramas, Uh, you've seen barristers wearing their powdered wigs and their preaching bands. And clergy wear those preaching bands as well, because they are authorized to preach and to speak. Well, the problem with these guys is they didn't have preaching bands. They weren't authorized to speak. They hadn't been to rabbinical academies. They'd never gone to seminary, and yet they're out there preaching publicly. And the problem was that they were preaching and they were teaching in the same way that Jesus taught And how did Jesus teach? Well, you could take a look at those references on your own in Matthew chapter 7 and Mark chapter 1 and John chapter 7 and so forth. We're told that when Jesus preached, it was like E.F. Hutton. You remember what happened when E.F. Hutton talked? Everybody listened. We're told that when Jesus spoke, he did not speak. As the scribes and the Pharisees, he taught as one having authority. Look at the Sermon on the Mount sometime. You have heard that it was said but I say to you. In other words, I know what other people have said, but I am now speaking to you. And Jesus is speaking as one having authority, and the problem was that people listened to him. They were drawn to Jesus. I think sometimes our contemporary pictures of Jesus get him all wrong. We have a tendency to sort of... The pictures that you see of Jesus in artwork sort of give you this weak, effeminate, pusillanimous Jesus. I don't think he was anything like that. My goodness, he traveled all over the country, walked everywhere he went, so he must have had muscles, he worked in a carpenter shop, and furthermore, who's attracted to that kind of pious, saintly person who's of such, you know, so heavenly-minded, he's of no earthly good to anyone? Who's attracted to that kind of a person? Jesus must have been a charismatic figure. He had that ability to draw people in. He told stories in such a way that they found themselves captivated. The scriptures came alive when Jesus spoke. And the Pharisees and the scribes hated Him for it because He taught as one having authority and they didn't. They had the authority, but when they taught, hardly anybody listened, and so they were jealous of Jesus. If you really want to know what the problem was, they were jealous of Jesus. They knew who He was. John chapter 3, Nicodemus said, we know, Nicodemus, who was a member of the, the, the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, we know that you are a man sent from God because nobody could do the things that you were doing unless God were with him. So they knew who he was, and yet they hated him anyway because they were jealous. Well, here's the problem. Two fishermen, they don't have any of the training. They've never been authorized by the authorities to speak, and yet they're out there speaking, and crowds are coming and listening to them and going after them. So that's part of the problem. They are speaking and they're speaking with authority. Where'd that authority come from? We've already said that over and over again, Peter always made a mess of things, didn't he? Now all of a sudden on Pentecost, filled with the Holy Spirit, he stands up and speaks and 3,000 people are converted. 3,120 people. Start out with 120. Peter preaches, there are 3,120. What does this text say? By the time it was all over, how many people? 5,000. So this man's really preaching with authority, and it's irritating the scribes and the Pharisees. They're jealous. So that's part of the problem. Here's the other thing. They weren't just teaching. They were teaching about what? About Jesus, which makes things complicated. Why? Because, as Peter had already said, it's this Jesus whom you crucified, and they had. They were so so jealous of Jesus, they decided to get rid of him. The assumption was... You've got this problem, what do you do with it? Well, you kill it. And if you kill it, eventually the movement will die. I don't know if you're aware of this, but during the first century alone, there were over 100 messianic movements. Over 100, that's an average of one a year. That's why the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70 AD, it was because of a messianic uprising and the Romans came in and destroyed the city completely. So there were all kinds of messiahs, all kinds of of, false saviors that appeared on the scene, claiming that they were going to deliver the Jews from their captivity to the Romans. The Romans knew how to deal with messianic movements. You cut off the head and the body dies. And that's exactly what they had done with every movement. There was only one messianic movement, listen to this, in the first century, where they killed the messiah and the movement continued to spread. That was the Jesus movement. So that's what they're worried about here. They're not just teaching with authority and people are going after them, but they're going after them because of Jesus. Now, we thought we dealt with that. And it's showing itself again. And we can't have that. And it wasn't just that they were teaching about Jesus. They were teaching about the resurrection. That this Jesus, whom they crucified, was alive again. So that was a problem for the Pharisees. Because my goodness, they thought they dealt with the problem and the problem's still there. In fact, the problem is growing in spite of the fact that this Jesus had been killed. And it was a problem for another part of the crowd, the Sadducees. Why? Because they didn't believe in the resurrection. (laughs) Now, normally the Pharisees and the Sadducees had nothing to do with each other. The one thing they had in common was that they both hated Jesus. My enemy's enemy is my friend. Uh, Keep your finger there for a moment and turn to Acts chapter 23. And in about, oh, year and a half, maybe we'll get to Acts chapter 23. (laughs) Acts chapter 23, verses 6 through 9. This is the Apostle Paul. We haven't even gotten to Paul. He hadn't even appeared on the scene yet. He's not even been converted. But we get to Acts chapter 23, verses 6 through 9. This is the story of Paul. Basically, the the book of Acts can be divided into two parts. The the first part of the book of Acts deals with the ministry of Peter, the second part deals with the ministry of the Apostle Paul. But when you get to Acts chapter 23, verse 6, we're told about Paul being dragged before the Jewish ruling council. Um, Indeed, before Ananias. And we're told this in Acts chapter 23, verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, and the other part, Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged all of these, and then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. Paul was a whiz. He, he sized up the situation very quickly, and he realized, ooh, we got Pharisees and got Sadducees here. These two guys can't stand each other. So he says well listen if you want to know the truth the only reason I'm here is because I believe in the resurrection and the Pharisees say well nothing wrong with that and the Sadducees said oh yes there's something wrong with that. who believes in the resurrection well we believe in the resurrection and all of a sudden these two people are fighting with each other and they've completely forgotten about Paul this is how he pulled the key on the grenade and just kind of rolled it into the room to see what was going to happen then he stood back and watched it go off well that's what's happening back here you see They hate each other. The only thing they hate more is Jesus. And so there's a problem here that they're teaching, they're teaching Jesus, and they're teaching about the resurrection. And what they want are for the disciples to stop. Let me tell you, the world wants us to stop. The world wants us to stop talking about Jesus. When I became the rector at a church in Choral, St. David's Church in Choral, when I was first there, Somebody said to me, he said, I want to know, and he was very irritated. He came to the 8 o'clock service. He was very irritated with me. He said, I want to know why you are always talking about Jesus. Here's why right here. Um, But he said, I don't know why you're always talking about Jesus. He said, in my day, we talked about God, but we never talked about Jesus. Why is it problematic to talk about Jesus? Jesus. Because God is sort of up there and removed in the minds of many people. When you start talking about Jesus, that gets a little too personal. And we're uncomfortable with that, aren't we? Talk about God, talk about a higher power, talk about the force, but don't talk about Jesus. When you talk about Jesus, that's a whole other matter. And so that was part of the problem. So we begin to talk about Jesus. We're gonna find that we are going to be very unpopular people. So what's the world going to do to us? Well, the world is going to do precisely the same thing that these people did to Peter and John. You'll see a number of things. The first thing that the world does, and these are the world's weapons, the first weapon of the world is intimidation. Intimidation. Take a look at what happens. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them. And in the Greek, came upon them meant rushed upon them. So, So they came in an intimidating fashion. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people. They didn't sort of come in a sort of deferential way, in a quiet way. They rushed upon them. And furthermore, they arrested them and put them in custody, but they never charged them. They never tell them why they're arrested. There's no charge brought against them. We're told they simply threw them into jail because it was nighttime. Now, what is that? That's a form of intimidation, folks. We're gonna scare you. We're gonna frighten you. And that's what the world wants to do. It wants to frighten Christians and intimidate Christians. And that's the first weapon that the world will use against us. It's a form of intimidation. Second thing that you'll find is that when intimidation doesn't work, they take it to the next level. It escalates to what? Threats. Threats. Look at verses 18 and following. And so they called them and charged them. The next day, you see, they charged them. And they charged them what? Not to speak or teach it all in the name of Jesus. Or else. That's the idea. Or else, verse And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. So they are threatening them. The world will try intimidation first. If intimidation doesn't work and Christians persist, then you start getting threats. And not just threats, but threats of what? We'll lock you up. We'll imprison you. If you were in church this past Sunday, I I shared with you a quote by Francis Cardinal George who was the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Chicago. Uh, He died one year ago, uh, this November, uh, and he died from cancer. Uh, He was a well-known Roman Catholic um, cardinal and bishop. But before he died, he had an interview with a reporter, and he was concerned, deeply concerned about what was happening in the United States. And he said that he suspected, he expected, he said, that I will die in my sleep. (laughs) He said, I'll die in my own bed, and he did. He said, but I expect that my successor, who's the current archbishop, he said, I expect that he's going to die in prison. And he said, I expect that his successor, that is the next archbishop, will die a martyr in a public square. And he said, and I expect that his successor will stoop down and pick up the shattered remains of a broken society and rebuild civilization as the church has done so many times before. Now, that's somebody who was speaking just a year ago who was looking at our culture, a prelate of the church, and recognizing what we're up against. So that's the situation. So there's imprisonment, and if imprisonment doesn't work, then what do you do? Death. If you think about the life and ministry of Jesus, this is exactly what they did to him. They would try to intimidate Jesus. Try to intimidate him what? By trying to discredit him in the eyes of the people. Coming with all these questions. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You know, if a woman marries a man and he dies, and then she marries his brother and he dies, and she goes through all the seven brothers in the kingdom to come, whose wife will she be? And there are all these questions, and they're trying to do what? Trip Jesus up, intimidate him with all of their learning, because after all, he'd never been to any rabbinical academies either. So we're going to intimidate him. When intimidation doesn't work, what happens? We're going to escalate it to threats. And When threats don't work, we're going to imprison him. And when imprisonment doesn't work, what are we going to do? We're going to kill him. And here's what Jesus says. Then kill me. And when the minute he said, kill me, All their power was gone. They had no more weapons left. That is why Jesus said, he who would seek to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for the sake of the gospel will ever surely find it. The only thing they can do is kill you. Now you say, well, that's the only thing they can do? But if you're a Christian, what? It's not the end. When we were going through all of this business with the Episcopal Church, and uh, I, I, maybe I shared this with you before, I was, I was troubled. I mean, I'd worked for a lot of years. I had a wife and four children that I needed to care for, and uh, the Episcopal Church made it very clear, we will freeze your pension, and it's a defined benefit plan, so it's based upon years of service, and they said, we're going to freeze your pension. And I called up Bishop Fitzsimmons Allison and I said, Bishop, they're going to freeze our pension. And he said, Jeffrey, they're not going to kill you. (laughs) And you know what? It dawned on me he was right. Of all the things they could do to me, they couldn't kill me. But even if they do, we know it's not the end. Listen, folks, This may be a revelation to you, but none of us is getting out of here alive. (laughs) We're all dying, sooner or later. You know that old tombstone in, in, in a quiet churchyard in Stafford, Virginia says, "'Dear Pastor, pause as you walk by, "'as I am now, as you are now, so once was I. "'As I am now, so you shall be. "'Tis best to prepare to follow me.'" It's true. I love that tombstone because somebody took a stone and carved underneath it. To follow you, I'll not consent until I know which way you went. (laughs) But the point is, we do have to be ready, don't we? But that's the charge that they're bringing. Intimidation, threats, imprisonment, death. And ultimately, every single one of these men, with the exception of John, was martyred. They killed Jesus, but the movement didn't stop. They killed Peter and James and John. Well, John was at least died in Patmos, but they killed Peter and James and Andrew and all the rest. And guess what? The movement didn't die. It's like trying to stamp out a forest fire. Oftentimes when you stamp it out, the only thing you do is succeed in spreading it. And the more they killed these people, the more it spread. The old expression is, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Those portions of the Christian church right now that are growing the greatest uncontrollably despite the best efforts of the world are those places where the church is under the cross. In the places where the church is not being persecuted, the church is languishing. And I have my own theory as to why that is. Cotton Mather was a great 17th century preacher. The only thing he's really remembered for is the Salem witch trials, which is unfortunate, but he was really a great Puritan preacher. And one of the things that he said was this, he said, wherever Christianity has gone, it has left people better than they were before. Christianity breeds affluence. And if you look at Western culture, that's true. The wealthiest countries, the most educated countries in the world are Western countries, and they have a what? They have a Christian heritage. But here's what he said. He said, the problem is, wherever Christianity is gone, it has always bred affluence, but then the daughter devours the mother. That is to say, the affluence devours the very faith that brought it into existence. And we're seeing that. That's why Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So as much as we wanna pray for the persecuted church, I know St. Michael's did a wonderful even song for the persecuted church and we need to highlight that. We need to understand that Christians are being persecuted on a regular basis throughout parts of the world in a way that we cannot even imagine. The fact that we are isolated at a cocktail party because we want to talk about Jesus is not persecution. It just isn't. Sorry. maybe may be impolite, but it's not persecution. But where the church is being persecuted, we should pray for these people, but we should not lose heart because it is the greatest witness in the world. Do you know the story of Thomas Cranmer, Hugh Latimer, and Nicholas Ridley? The Oxford martyrs? They were bishops Um, in the Church of England. They were Protestant bishops, and Queen Mary uh, had ordered that they recant their Protestant faith, belief in the doctrine of justification, the supremacy of the scriptures over the supremacy of the magisterium, etc. And two of these men, Nicholas Ridley um, and Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley was the Bishop of London, one of the um, co-authors of the Book of Common Prayer, and Hugh Latimer, who was the Bishop of Worcester, they were both uh, arrested. Order to recant their faith, they refused to do so. They were tied back to back in a public square in Oxford. And they were going to be burned alive. And Ridley was anxious. He didn't recant his faith, but he was very anxious. And they were tied back to back. And as they lit the flames, Hugh Latimer cried out, the older man to the younger, Take heart, Master Ridley, for we shall this day light such a fire under England as I trust shall never be put out. And they did. They did. And they actually inspired Thomas Cranmer, who we all know is one of the great heroes of Anglicanism. He watched those two men burn to death. And when the queen ordered him to recant his faith, he did. He recanted it. In a moment of weakness, he recanted his faith. And the queen said, he'll burn anyway. And so they took him out and uh, tied him to the same area, same stake that these other men were martyred in, and they lit the fire. And as they lit the fire, he somehow managed to get his right hand free. And he shouted out, let the hand that denied Christ, because he'd signed the recantation. He said, let the hand that denied Christ burn first. And he held it down into the flames until it was completely consumed. And that was the turning point in the English Reformation. Queen Mary never stood a chance. Because all of a sudden people saw these men die and not die as cowards but die as heroes for the sake of their Lord who had died for them. And that paved the way for the Elizabethan settlement and for Anglicanism as we know it today. So we try to stamp it out. The world will always try to stamp it out. But Jesus made it very clear the gates of hell shall never prevail against the church and I want you to think about that for a moment think about that expression the gates of hell shall never prevail against the church what are gates used for to keep people out or to keep people in yes but to keep people out oftentimes so when Jesus says the gates of hell shall never prevail against the church don't think of the church in a siege mentality. The church is on the offensive. The church is moving out into the world, and it is literally storming the gates of hell, and the promise is that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of God. So it does not matter what they do to us. They cannot kill the body. They can kill the body. They cannot kill the soul. Now what Martin Luther said in that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? This body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So, those are the world's weapons. They try to stamp it out. It's not working. What's the apostles' response? How do the apostles respond in the midst of this? Well, take a look at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, Said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't have time to look at those Old Testament references. You can look at them yourself. But what is interesting is at this point, Peter could have been very intimidated. He could have soft pedaled it, but he didn't. We're told he was filled with the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that filled him on Pentecost came and filled him again, and he spoke. And again, he realized an opportunity. An opportunity to do what? Not simply to bear witness to the common folk, but as he stood there before the authorities themselves, here was an opportunity to bear witness to Jesus, to the powerful, to the mighty. And he seized that opportunity. And look at what he says he reminds them they were guilty of crucifying the Lord. That is to say, he confronts them with their sin. I've said to you before, it needs to be repeated again. If you don't see yourself as a sinner, you'll never see the value of a Savior. Unless you're drowning, you'll never see the value of a life preserver. So Jesus is the one they crucified, and Peter confronts them with that. But then he confronts them with the same thing that he confronted the people with. That this Jesus was raised from the dead. Furthermore, he goes on to say, you cannot stop this movement because you are not fighting against men, you are fighting against God. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone. And then he goes on to say this, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that really was the deciding factor. That was the real issue here. It wasn't just that they were teaching. It wasn't even just that they were teaching about Jesus and the resurrection. They were teaching in this particular name. It was the name of Jesus that was the real issue. By the name. Look at how many times that expression is used in these few verses. Look at verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what? By what name. Do you do this? Verse 10, Peter says, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Verse 12, there is no other name under, which, under heaven by which men must be saved. And when they finally released them, what did they say in verse 17? They ordered them not to speak any more in what? In this name. How many of you are Christians today? You bear the name. A Christian is a Christ one. You bear the name of Jesus. How many remember this old television show? Anybody? What is that? Sergeant Preston of the Yukon. Somebody remembers that. You could still get the reruns on YouTube. Sergeant Preston of the Yukon. It's a television show back in the, in the, I guess it was in the, in the 60s, the early 60s, and you know when they were had all the westerns on, Hopalong Cassidy and all those other. Sergeant Preston of the Yukon was the Canadian version of it. He was a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the Northwest Mounted Police, and I used to watch that show, and he always had his dog King. That was his dog King, and he rode a horse called Rex. And I was always impressed with Sergeant Preston of the Yukon, and he was always round up these bad guys, these loggers and lumberjacks that were out there causing trouble. And any time he went out, he would shout to them, stop in the name of the crown. He was calling them to account in the name of what? The crown, the authority. That's what Peter is saying. You and I go forward under the authority and in the name of Jesus Christ to whom every knee will one day bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. You do not go forth in a world that is trying to intimidate you with weakness. Zion may stand by hills surrounded, but you go forth in the name of Jesus that made this crippled man well, that raised people from the dead. It is the name of Jesus by which men are saved and redeemed day in and day out. You have nothing to fear. There is no power on earth that is greater than the name of Jesus Christ. And you bear that name. So Zion may stand by hill surrounded, but Zion is kept by a power divine by the name of Jesus and all her foes Shall be confounded though the world in arms combine. They killed Jesus, they imprisoned the apostles, and eventually executed them. And guess what? We are still here today. And even if they kill us now, the name of Jesus will always, always prevail. So don't be fearful. Some years ago, Franklin Graham was asked to give the invocation at an inauguration. And he was told what he could say and what he couldn't say. And he got up there and he said the prayer and he prayed in the name of Jesus. And it caused a huge stir. How dare he do that? And Franklin Graham made it very clear. He said, you asked me to give the invocation." I am a Christian. I bear that name, and it's in that name that I speak, that I bear witness, and it's in that name that, God willing, I shall die. May the same be true for you and for me. No matter what the world brings against us, the gates of hell cannot prevail. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the example of the Apostles. We thank you for Peter and John, unschooled men, they didn't have a college degree or a graduate degree, no seminary training, but they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they were fearless. The world brought everything in its arsenal, every weapon it had against them, but they had the greatest weapon of all, the name of Jesus that makes the wounded whole, that raises people from the dead, that opens the eyes of the blind and makes the lame leap for joy. Grant us the grace as Christians to bear that name with humility and with power. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.